Hello and welcome to Flo's First and Favourite. I'm Blair. And I'm David. And on this week's episode, we are very privileged to have Rob Etherson, one half of Meadora, brain dancing, label owner, superstar producer, um, and just all around great guy. Welcome to Flo's First and Favourite. How are we doing? Hello. How are you doing, mate? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem. No problem at all. Um, so we were doing some research on you. Um, I- I'm interested to know, do you remember your first release? Whoa. I think so. I think I know. I think I know what my first release was. Is it a track Equinox with Mark Maitland? That's it. Do you remember when it came out? Mm, no. <laughs> it uh, was February 2009. 2009? Right, okay. That's cool. That's 11 years. 11 years ago? Right, okay. So I, um, 2009, it's, it's hard to work out what age I'm there. I don't know what, what, what age was I there. 21. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was 21. I think it was about 12. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't need to work that out. That's, that's terrible. I'm, I'm not very good with maths. Sorry. I was born in 82, so whatever age I was then. I, I basically made the leap to, to start doing music when I was 24, I think. So I was a bit of a late starter. Um, and, what, and what brought that on, Rob? Was it was it kind of like just looking to kind of break boundaries or was it just... No, no, just, just purely um, hobby and interest. It, it was based around, I moved to Newcastle at the time to, live, to spend a bit of time with my dad and live there. Um, and while I was there, uh, I had I'd previously worked in kind of like, not dead-end jobs, but just structured jobs from school. And I, I just wanted to break away from that. I'd hit an age where I, I wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do. And I was trying to get into university. So I tried to go to university in Newcastle, didn't quite have enough de- like qualifications, and I went in Newcastle College and I had to do an access course for a year. So I was trying to do some kind of engineering degree, I think, like structural engineering or whatever. Or, but basically what they said to me was, you don't have enough qualifications from school, so you're going to have to do an access course to get you up to speed with university life, um, just to get you used to writing essays and kind of structure university, just a little kind of a kickstarter year, if you want to call it that. But the guy who was interviewing me in the college was really kind, and he said to me, do you have any hobbies? And I was like, yeah, I'm kind of like a bedroom DJ, and like I kind of mess about with music, and I was interested in that at the time. And he says, well, we've got a course in music production. You could do that because the access course doesn't really have much relevance to what you want to study. It's just to get your grades up to scratch. It's just to pull you into the kind of standard that you need to meet to, to start a university degree. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, I'll do music production then. Yeah. Um, and what was New like, Newcastle like for uh, music at that time? Was it, was it good? Was it vibrant? Yeah, it was, it was amazing. I was going to parties there. There was a Saturday night. There was a, I think it was a club called Foundation, and there was a night called Shindig, which is the equivalent to Glasgow's subculture. So it was their mainstay Saturday night house night. I'd been going to that, and I'd been going to like at the time I was into hard house and trance and things like that. So there was like a lot of a busy scene down there, and that had a kind of symmetry with Glasgow, like the arches and stuff like that. So I was going out there, but my kind of my eyes never really opened up properly till. I started kind of working and dabbling in music. That's what kind of changed my musical taste and my kind of direction and where I wanted to go. Because I liked trans music and 
harder dance music and I was getting into techno, but when I started to try to make music, that was too far of a jump for me at the time. So minimal was big at the time, which was, like as you can imagine, a lot less elements in the music, kick drum, cool, clicky, bleepy noises. Um, I found that easy to make. I just found, and I just, I just dabbled with that, and it pulled me into a whole other kind of world, like a whole other scene. So when was that? What year? What year was that? Well, that, well, if that track came out in two thousand and nine, it would have been a couple of years before that. So, so about two thousand and four, two thousand and five, I think. What drew you back to Glasgow? Would you say, like, in terms of, like, kind of, was it, was it family? Was it friends? Yeah, family. Falling out with a bird, things like that. Do you know what I mean? Like all the usual things that drag you back home. Like I'm sure anybody that's lived away for like college or anything like that, and you live a you live a good couple of years somewhere else, and then you know just family stuff happens, and then you decide to take a break. And what happened to me was I was at college for a year, and it was I kind of when I did the interview for the college course, I the guy who was taking the course was a bit busy, and he was like. Would you mind if I just drag another student in with you and then use both at the same time? And I was like, yeah, cool. Like, I'm easy. And that person who got dragged in with me was a guy called Mark Maitland, who I released that song with. That's incredible. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I met Mark. And me and Mark have been best friends since then, till now. We still work every day together, even now. Um, Godparent to his son and things like that. So we became kind of like, kind of really good close pals down there the college course was only a year long and that's all that's all i did i was studying logic at the time and i was i had just bought ableton it was on version five it was at um and for a year i just didn't know how to work it so i just sat there on a laptop and the college were teaching logic so i just kind of scrapped that put it aside and learned kind of the basics of logic i didn't know anything about anything like structure sound design, anything, but the college course was really good. There was a guy called Dave Anderson, I think his name was, who was the college lecturer. I was a little bit older than most of the people in the course as well. I was 24, and everybody else was like 17, 18, and they just wanted to go out and party, and like I was just like super focused on just wanting to learn this stuff because the college was amazing. It had like, like a full kind of outboard synth room that had... One of the classes was specifically on sound design, so I learned a lot in that first year, just stuff that I still use today. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, and I mean, wait, like obviously, like through getting to know you, Rob, you've you've got like a massive um, and very broad music taste. Where where does that all come from? Was that was that sort of um, from like growing up, or or was that something that developed when you were at college? It changed direction at college, but. From a really early age, it was influenced by my mum. She was kind of early, like my mum had me when she was 17, so um, she was really young. So by the time I hit like 10, she was only 27, she was still going clubbing, and it was the, the kind of 90s boomer, like dance music, so all she listened to was tapes and stuff like that. So the influence definitely came from her. I rebelled, got into Happy Hardcore. She hated that, <laughs> um, and I eventually walked my way back to the house. So she was like, my mom listened to things like Pete Tong on the weekend and would try and get me to listen to it and be like, oh, I'll listen to this tune and listen to this tune. And I'd be like, it's too slow, mom. Like, it's rubbing. Yeah, and, and on to Pete Tong, like, how how did it feel when um, that, that first time that uh, one of your many aliases, Miyadora, um, got first um, Pete Tong's Essential Selection or whatever it was called? Um uh, with Clear, how did that feel for you? Um, well, specifically with that one, with it was at a kind of time where things were just kind of going right for me. The first kind of, I mean, I would say peak point of what I was trying to do was kind of coming together. And my mum had obviously been the first person to tell me about someone like Pete Tong. And then eventually I kind of got played on his radio show, got interviewed on his radio show, and got a central new tune, and that was quite a cool kind of story from my mum. Do you know what I mean? I could say, hey, look, I've got like a tune on Pete Tong. It was quite cool. Full circle. Yeah, very cool. And at the time as well, it was a it was a total double bubble kind of thing for me. I was playing Fabric the night 
I heard about that was essential nutrition. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, still to this day, Rob, I'm not going to lie. Like any time I hear that tune, taps off. <laughs> I it's not the the one I'm most proud of, but it was the one that kind of opened a lot of doors. I, I don't mean I don't mean that I say that I'm not proud of it. I'm proud of it. It's just like there's there was other songs that I did that it more it was more exciting to me. That was like a like a big tune at the time, but. Uh, we shied away from playing that out for some reason. I don't know why. Just it felt like an end of night song. Like it was a quite a big euphoric like, sort of thing. Uplifting had a vocal. It was very kind of like period at that time. That that was the style of music that was out then, and it mm. dated quite quickly. So I don't know if it was just maybe a combination of that, or I don't know. I, at the time, whenever I had something big, I kind of didn't want to jinx it, so I just kept my head down and. I didn't like celebrate it. I just wanted to do the next song, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because I don't know if there are any young producers that are out there that are, that are just kind of breaking through. When you, it's so easy to get like to get wrapped up in your own hype, and I was a wee bit scared of that. I was a wee bit like I had, I had super focused. You know what I mean? I was just like I was so determined to to keep writing music and keep doing what I was doing. But when those things happened, I kind of just didn't. I kind of ignored them a little bit. I was just like, "Oh, it's cool, it's cool," but just like, but, but I'm doing, but I'm doing this now. I remember, I remember hearing. I think it was a midnight um, sort of show that Scream had, um, or Screaming Benga at the time. So they were still doing dubstep, and Scream uh, was doing the show for whatever reason by himself, and he plays Sex Lines, and um, and I just thought at that time for him to play that record um, is absolute compliment um to you and al um uh, you know just in terms of like that sort of like move into um different genres of music different different sounds and stuff like that because they were still at that time kind of doing the american yeah um uh, you know big shows in america for dubstep and stuff like that and that's that's a big deal i've got to give credit to al for that because he came in because he wanted to do the dubstep and I was a house guy, and I was like, what's dubstep? <laughs> and he was just like, well, tell I, I knew what dubstep was, but I didn't know how to make it. So I was like, all right, cool. No worries, just come in and I'll, I'll try my best. And we ended up just clicking in and having a good relationship together, a good partnership, with a good laugh. Um, and then we decided to kind of start the Meadora project from there. But... He was kind of more from the art school world, which was like things like, um, you know, numbers and, you know, like uh, art school Thursdays, nights like that. And I was more from like the techno household, the pressure, sub club, things like that. So we met in the middle somewhere. That's why when we were writing house, it didn't really fit in with house. It fitted more in with the garage and kind of dubstep London scene. So guys like Benga and Scream started playing it on the radio and stuff like that, which is funny because my engineering career ended up leading me to mix a record for Scream recently which was cool which is a cool little kind of turn of events as well. It's interesting from a release point of view, the first Miadora release was actually a remix of Roots Maneuver, which was Get the Get so like how did that come about? It's very rare for I think a new artist to have a remix first Yeah, so I didn't realise how lucky I was at the time with that I knew who Roots Maneuver was, I knew Witness the fitness and stuff like he's kind of classic stuff, but I didn't really know his heritage, his proper heritage. So I was a little bit naive at the time. I just thought it was cool. I was like, we're getting a remix on Ninja Tune. This is cool. It was going to come out in Big Dada, who was basically putting out guys like it was all the Grime guy, LA Grime guys, and all that were coming out of there. Wiley and like MLK and things like that. I think we're on Big Dada at the time. Roots Maneuver was on Big Dada. So that came about through Miadora tracks. We got introduced to Kevin Mackay at Glasgow Underground who started managing us and the first thing that he got for us was that remix so technically that was the first Meadora release because we had songs coming out but nothing had materialised at the time we were still waiting it was like you know where it's like it takes like years sometimes for a song to see the light of day so we knew there was stuff coming out and there was a bit of hype about us we'd managed to build up some hype locally in Glasgow that filtered down to London somehow. I don't know how that happened, but it just did. I got that remix in. It was a pop song, 
and we did this kind of like base garage dubstep kind of hybrid house thing with it and it, and it worked really well with the vocal uh, at the time I was DJing in commercial clubs as well so when I was building up all my studio equipment and starting out I didn't want to work in normal jobs I just thought fuck this I'm not I'm not doing this I was like so the, uh, one way to get out of that was to DJ student parties and commercial venues and they had I was a nobody at the time, so I had nothing to lose. You know what I mean? I didn't have like any reputation that I was worried about. Like, you know, if one week I had to play like Daft Punk and Katy Perry and just whatever, just like just music or hip hop on a Wednesday or like you know like this commercial stuff, that it, it gave me a salary, it gave me like a wage, and it let me have all week to myself to write music. So I had Monday to Friday to write tunes. I could DJ twice at the weekend at a student venue. And earn a kind of pretty much a full time wage plus a little bit of engineering during the week to take me over, um, and that was that was so helpful at the time because what I didn't realise at the time was I was getting an apprenticeship as a DJ, a, a difficult apprenticeship as well because if anybody's ever worked in a commercial club, it's way harder to keep a dance floor engaged when they don't know who you are, they don't care who you are. So your job is to read the floor. And I think because I got that first big remix with a vocal, I kind of knew what worked with vocals. Even though I was in a house and techno, I knew that I could I could tackle that. You know, I could write a track with a vocal. And I think at the time I knew how to make it sound cool because I knew what I liked. I knew the music I liked. I, kn- I knew what was cool, but I couldn't play what was cool. So it was a lucky a lucky moment for me i think yeah and um and and that sort of period um sort of kind of playing out very commercial pop records did that would you say that that sort of like helped with your later productions and and, and making you a more diverse uh, producer massively like massively um think that helped and it's, it can be it's very humbling as well it kind of keeps you grounded and it helped with a lot of ego things. It helped with a lot of just things that people don't talk about as well. Things like um, I don't know, anxiety of fitting in and like being cool and having to play the right tunes. I just didn't give a fuck. I was just like, nah, I can I can do this all. I was just like, I, like I don't care. I was like, I'll play this music. Luckily, I had a couple of good people over my shoulder. I had a good people saying, look, just do this. It'll make you a buck. And then you can go and do what you want at the weekend. Like, like you can go to subculture and subclub and, like, nobody cares. And they don't care. Like, I think that was I think that was handy, you know. just It just kept me, like, concentrating on, I knew what I wanted to do. I know where I wanted to go. I had it in my idea, the music that I wanted to create. I wasn't good enough yet, so... Like learning to DJ in a club where smoke machines don't work and you have to turn lights off by putting a plug in and out <laughs> while you're DJing, like it's such a good thing. Like you have to be like a light jockey, or, like people making you run about. Like um, you know, half the time you're like doing stupid things, like helping the bar staff carry kegs up and downstairs, like just silly things. You know what I mean? It's like, a good workout. Gets your steps <laughs> up. Yeah, just, I think. Uh, I don't know. You guys have kind of came from that world a little bit as well, haven't you? A wee bit, yeah. I don't know. I, I love pop music. Like I, I love pop music. There's just nothing. There's nothing better than a good pop song. Like and as a producer or a young producer, if you are learning to make music, go through the top twenty in iTunes or whatever or Spotify, whatever your kind of visions are of the kind of popular music culture. There's nothing badly mixed. There is nothing badly mixed because there's guys behind those records that are geniuses, whether you don't like the songs or not. Yeah. There's just so much to learn from what what, what other people call so-called bad records. There's so much to learn from pop. Like, And in terms of like actual good pop, I, I would say just listen to the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, like, I yeah. Love, like George Martin, there's like another one for you, like the, 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 the Beatles you know absolutely pioneer for using things like sitars and reversing tape machines and using phase and things like that i learned so much from those those beatles records that sound like radiohead records do you know what i mean it was like 
there's interesting like get into their catalogue. There's like I've got a mate's dad who's a Beatles fanatic and he would let me hear things and I would just be like Wow, that's so cool. I listen to Beatles I listen to a lot of Paul McCartney and Beatles stuff now. Like I love it. There's so many good things like that. Yeah. That's that's normally my Sunday, Rob, is um it's just hand making pasta and listen to the Beatles. Oh, you're into the pasta <laughs> on vinyl. Somebody bought you a pasta machine, huh? Uh yeah, yeah. My my partner did uh, on my birthday, so I'm getting into it. I'm making ravioli most Sundays. <laughs> nice. There's a lot of symmetries with dance music and cooking. Like, yeah. see if you're producing. There is. There's a lot. Of, I know. I know a lot of DJs, a lot of producers that are massively into cooking. My dad's a really good cook. He's into cooking and yeah. Um, I often make a chicken jowl ravey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you need to keep that in the podcast. Oh, God. <laughs> it is funny you say that, though, because, like, um, see, for me, me and my flatmate both did sound production um, before, and when we used to cook, we would, like, I'd go, taste this sauce, right? And I, and a lot of the time, we would just describe it to each other as in, like, frequency spectrum. We'd be like, because you could, we, it was the only thing we knew to to do together so it was so it was like we'd go oh it's it's missing some like it's mid it's like bass heavy with a lot of high but it just needs a bit of mid in there and i understood what he meant every time like and it was so weird but it worked so well any music guys out there will laugh at that anybody else will just think you're an idiot that's what i think <laughs> was like anybody who, who does music or produces music will be like totally i get that anybody else will be like what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Though. So, so what? What would you say, Rob? Is I know, I know it's a very difficult question, but like, what would you say is your favorite record of all time? Your favorite song? I think for me, it can't, I don't. I don't think I can put a dance song in there because, like, music can be really powerful and emotional and maybe mean something to you. And most of the time that comes through lyrics or melody or whatever. And there's plenty of dance songs for me that do that. There's, like, d- dance songs that I can listen to. It'll make the hairs of my neck stand up. You know what I mean? There is stuff out there that is really influential to me. But when it comes to, like, I don't know, it's a hard one, isn't it? Like, when you mentioned Beatles, like, I think a song that popped into my head there was actually Paul McCartney's Blackbird. Yeah, the yeah, incredible record. Uh, if you dig into the meaning of that song and what it was about, and like it was so ahead of its time in so many ways, but um, melodically and like how it was written, like it, it, there's a wee story behind it, and it's amazing. Just and I think that's the one I can listen to quite a lot and like appreciate lots of little things in it. It's like a, it's definitely one of my favourites. <laughs> I've got a good reason why I like lots of different music actually because I didn't have anybody guiding me like. I didn't have a big brother or anyone who was like a tastemaker for me. Do you know, like if you've got a, if you've got an older cousin or a big brother and they are fanatics about a, like a genre or a song or a thing, it can easily guide you somewhere. Yeah. But when you are on a kind of like a wee explanation of music yourself, you have to just stumble through a lot of shit. You have to go, like, <laughs> and that's what happens. Like when, that's what happens with a lot of my friends as well. Is like we loved happy hardcore. We loved trance, then techno, then Eurohouse, and then um, Deep House, and Minimal, and through to Disco, and so, and, and then you just kind of, it's like a big journey, so I think it's hard to boil down a favourite tune, but I think if you can narrow it down to a songs that can put you in a time or a place, I think that's a good way to kind of narrow it down, like, I've got lots of my favourite songs, but I've got this one song, um, System F, Out of the Blue, by Ferry Coston, because... I was into Happy Hardcore at the time when that came out, or whatever, like like different genres, and it was totally outside my my comfort zone of what I was into. And immediately, it just like kind of like immediately, I was like, "What is that tune? It's amazing, just unbelievable!" And I had it on a a Walkman, like, and I used to walk to to school and like have that on, like, and it would be like. If anybody's ever taken pills, you got like a euphoric, like actual total like uplifting kind of moment. That song gave me that, and and I don't take drugs. I don't. I've never taken drugs, but it's the one thing I missed out on. But 
I got that buzz from music so early on in my life, like from eight, nine year old, I was like, just there was synthesizer based music done it for me. Synths, anything that was like like eighties synth pop, Prince, things like that. Um, anything that was like, synthetic sounding was gave me like the goosebump. Yeah, Prince, Prince is just an absolute god in terms of music. Oh, an absolute um, genius. And pop music. A million favourite Prince songs. My uncle, my uncle Eric was a massive Prince fan. He was like obsessed with Prince and I just didn't get it. I was just like, I don't get it. But I heard a lot of it when I was young. So it um, wasn't until I actually was older that I would appreciate what that was like. And I'm a massive Prince fan as well. Now, so. to, just, to just jump back to System F out of the blue for a second, just because... Songs nowadays are quite fast paced. They come and go quite quickly. That stuck with me for years. That stuck with me like for like while I transitioned out of trance music and house music and stuff. It just there was the the whole melodic part of that really kind of struck a chord with me. And I don't know. That's just a kind of seminal record for me at an age. It can get, I, I can think of that song and think where I first heard it and think. It puts me in an exact place and time, do you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like share belief. <laughs> um, sc- <laughs> Scout disco, food poisoning. There you go. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, Throwing my guts up in the toilet. Oh, do you know what? I love that, Dave. Speyside that, High School. There you go. There's songs. That, do you know, that's why music's so powerful. It can actually, it can actually like transport you somewhere very quickly. Do you have any songs that can do that for you, Blair, at all? Like, if you think of a song, it reminds you of a place, a time, like... Yeah, um, Soul Wax, the Part of the Weekend Never Dies album, that takes me back to my halls because I just absolutely rinsed that in, in that time. So it reminds me of that horrible bed that I was way too small for me that I had to poke my toes through the metal slats. Um, and, I, yeah, I had this awful little computer hi-fi thing and i used to blast that album at the time through that and basically just lie in my bed and listen to it for just a, a way too much but yeah it reminds me of getting drunk um at being 18 uh, See, it was brilliant that's that's good because that's what, that's what ties a favorite like a, a favorite song for me is like it's not that i wouldn't say system out of the blue is a my favorite song it's not it's just one that was a favorite at a time and it and it was like yeah kind of like like pivotal for me just something that just kind of like really snaps you back to a time I think that's what narrows down some favorite songs for me because I've got lots and lots of songs that I love like but I think that's when music's a wee bit special when you could like you say lying in your bed with headphones on like looking at the ceiling just insanely listening to something so what is your favorite tune you've released out of all of your all of your guys's Everything. Could you pin one down as your favourite? Ooh. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a really difficult question as well. So when I spoke earlier about having a mentality of like being focused and I kind of always tell myself that I've not wrote my best tune yet. I don't know if that's a good mm-hmm. thing or a bad thing. Maybe if, any, if there's any other producers out there that... that like for, I feel like I've wrote some good songs and some bad songs and some terrible songs or whatever, but I always have this little kind of thing in my head that I've not wrote my best one yet. It really kind of keeps you driving forward. But if I was to pick one that there was... Um, uh, me Doris Unsub, I think, was a good one for me. Um, it, it opened a lot of doors that I was trying to get into at the time. So we had some success. And the fact that we were touring at the time and stuff and we had an agent and a manager and things, but we we really wanted to get into a world that was like that aligned more with the music that we wanted to play and that was like the optimal kind of world. Like um and when we signed that record to Optimal, that was a really kinda of high moment for me. I was really happy with getting that signed. Plus the fact it's just a kick in a cowbell. Yeah, talk about Sorry. that. Sorry. Because that's what I had a question about that because it was the that whole idea of like you I know I know you from trying difficult things. And I remember you coming up. Well, I come I came up once and you were in the house and you literally just said, 
I've been trying to make this track with just a cowbell. And I've, I think I, I think I've nailed it. And I was just like, all right, cool. And it wasn't, it didn't have the kind of 808, um, that kind of baseline in it yet. But it was, it was you just basically like taking the sample and just ramping it up so that it did that thing and built that as a build up and then came back in with a kick. And I remember, I remember hearing it out in a club. That was unreal, mm-hmm. unreal. It goes off. Like I remember, it was subby. I think one night you guys played it, and I just it's that you know it's a big tune and people are really banging the roof. Like that's the sign in sub club, and that did yeah, that. Yeah, one of the things that does give you like a really good buzz is a song that nobody knows, and you play it and you get a reaction that's like like mad, like metal. And I've got a couple of tunes that I wrote. That did that for me. That I knew would be like maybe not massive tunes, but I just knew that they worked in a club. Do you know what I mean? And that was one of them. That was uh, unsub by Meadora was one of them, and it was it spawned from back back then. CDJs weren't synced or anything. They didn't have a quantize function. They didn't have um, so any looping that you did. You did manually. If anyone remembers us, they had the little yellow in and out button. Yeah, but it wasn't. You had to be so precise at getting it right, and you could loop adjust. You could out, hit the out section of the loop shortener by using the jog wheel on the CDJ. Yeah, and I was quite good at live looping. I could like catch something live, and it would be in time. And what I would do is catch it live with in out, maybe over like a bar, and then adjust my headphones so quickly to get it in time, and then keep the loop going in time when I was DJing. You could shorten the loop down and it made that effect. It made that, like, on a beat, it would go dung, 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 dung. And as you shorten the loop, it would go until it became a, until it became like a tone. And I thought that would be cool to try that in a track. Yeah. So I tried it with Cowbell. I made a 117 BPM loop. And when you put it in the sampler, it played perfectly as the rhythm of that loop. But then when you hit the loop function in the sampler, jogged into that kind of like cdj mode and then you could shorten the loop but as you shorten the loop down to a like almost like a key or a tone like a like a constant tone then you could play it on a keyboard like like a like a rhythmical hit so i combined those three things of having 117 bpm loop inside a sampler that could play when i held the key down mm-hmm I could also turn a loop function on and shorten the loop and play it like a rhythm. And that was the basis of that whole tune. Basically, kick drum underneath, cool rhythmical element on this high-pitching short loop tone. And then when I let the loop go, it would magically just kick in at the right tempo as well. It was kind of nice. I had the idea in my head before I I had wrote that tune, which was quite cool. And how important is that to you, Rob? Is Is it kind of around... Um, do you do, do you have a, like a set way that you start a track? Do or do you have an know. idea like that? I, I came from years of just fucking about, like you know, just like just trying things, you know, just trying things. And like when you're in the studio, there's no pressure. You can try loads of daft things, you know. And that was one of those things that it was a kind of DJ tool. Uh, and I thought this would be cool. We were doing live sets at the time. And I thought I could do this in a live set. This would be quite cool. To how would a live loop something and like mess about with it and. There's tons of ways to do that now, but at the time, I just thought that was a cool idea. I just thought that was a good idea to try something like that. And then when it just went with a kick, I had three options. I had the loop, the the, the physical thing that I'd sampled, plus the shortened thing. And just messing about with all them, I could have done that for like six minutes, and it made a cool tune. Um, and with a kick underneath it, and then I added an acid line later, and... I think the record's only four minutes long, four and a half minutes long, and I sent it to Keith from Optimal, and he loved it. He played it on his a boiler room set, and it just was it went mental. And then he was like, "Nah, just leave it as it is. It's cool. I like it." Um, and that's the kind of how that that kind of came about. Um, and it opened a door for for me and Dora at the time. We kind of turned a corner and started releasing on like a lot more kind of underground labels that we wanted to be on at the time so it was cool good good record good i'm, I'm still happy when i hear that one as well it's still cool i think it'll date well sticking with production and mixing 
What is the first piece of advice you'd give any new producer wanting to make music? The first piece of advice I would give is get you get used to referencing, get used to get used to comparing your music to other people's music and not be disappointed. And there's a there's a little there's a little trick to that. There's a trick. The trick is to bring the reference records into your session and bypass them from your master or whatever, like so that they're physically in the project that you're working with and turn them down, turn the reference song in volume down to the level that you're working at. That lets you listen quickly to a song you really love compared to a song that you're making and not to be discouraged by how good that song is you bring it down to a relative volume, and that's the, the one mistake I think a lot of people make is they'll be writing a song, they'll listen, they'll jump over to iTunes or Spotify or whatever, YouTube, whatever, and the song that they listen to is much louder and much better produced, and it can give you that little, like, really disappointed feeling. Like, And I just learned the hard way over the years that the best thing to do is to bring that down to a relative volume so that you can, not one, not be discouraged by the, the producer that you think is better than you or whatever. It's just to let your ears adjust to mixing a record properly. That, like, fuck volume. I mean, you don't need to worry about volume. Volume's irrelevant. It's balance. is everything. And if you can do that, you will learn a lot from that record in just terms of balance and mix. Like... It's a bit like an, an artist who's painting like a like a portrait or a what, if you're painting a subject and then you're using a canvas, you constantly look at the person and then paint and then look at the person and paint and look at the person and paint. And that's a good, that's a thing that you need to do in music because you're not listening to, a lot of people get put off by being influenced by the song or creatively pushed in a direction by using the reference, but you need to switch your mind off to that and think of it as a sonic palette. It will let you know where you're going wrong. So to flip that, sticking with the podcast theme, right? What is the favorite? What is your favorite piece of advice you have been given? What's my favorite bit of advice that I've been given? The thing that stuck with me the most was one of the really basic things that I learned in college, and it was and it applies to everything. And I teach it. I teach it at school now, like a mixing master in school. Um, and the one, and I've carried this thing from the start. It didn't really sink in for a long time, but it's it stayed with me. And it's the 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 building blocks of sound is into three departments: pitch, tone, and amplitude. And that was the be- the best breakdown of what I was going to do in the future and use. It was um, a college lecturer explained it to me. He just said, "If you have a synthesizer, you've got an oscillator." a filter, and an amplitude, a volume envelope. And those three things you'll be able to shape like any sound out of. And when it comes to mixing, those are the three things I think about. Pitch being which frequency am I looking for? Where in the range is it? Is it low, mid, high? Like how much energy does it have? It's identifying and finding something. Um, tone, is it dull or bright? And how that affects mix. So if it leads me on to perception, which I'll explain in a second. But if a, if a sound is bright, like you don't have much filtering or you've boosted the high end, it feels much closer to you. Therefore, it feels louder. So you can get away with turning that sound down. And that's quite a hard one to kind of a, to visualise, if you can imagine. Bright <laughs> sound sounds harsh and close, so you can turn it down. So that can be used to your advantage. Um, it's vice versa. If it's filtered all the way down and it sounds low and muffled. It'll sound warm and distant. It'll sound far away. So that's the second part of that. And amplitude is just volume. It's like You can think about that like an axis, how loud. So frequencies left and right, volumes up and down, and tone is back and forward. And you can that's your three tools for mixing a record that that will carry through everything. It'll carry me in synthesis. It'll carry me into um, mastering, mixing, balance. It's so simple. But if you can work out what that is, you can apply it to everything as well. I've never thought about it in that sort of 
to 3D axis. So that's a that's a brilliant way of thinking about it, actually. Yeah. So a lot of it, music is three dimensional, but but what what I'm talking about in terms of that's the building blocks of it. But how do you manipulate it? And that leads you on to perception. Um, so perception's a funny thing, and 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 I heard again another piece of advice I learned from someone else is perception's a bit like a spotlight, like a torch, right? It, it, like. There's so much information coming at you, your brain automatically filters it. Like in with music, you can only hear three things at once. You, your ear can only really tune into three things. The rest gets made redundant, and that comes in handy when you're mixing. So perception, for example, a physical perception right now. If, if you're if you're listening to this podcast, um, you can imagine if you're sitting down, the pressure of gravity on your bum against the sea. <laughs> is constant and it's there but now that I've made you think about it the spotlight of perception is focused there so it's been there the whole time that you're listening but now because I've brought it to your attention you can actually you can feel that the pressure of you sitting and that's that's the key with music it's, perce- it's all perception based and mixing is that the listeners get so much information thrown at them all these frequency ranges pushed at them, the brain makes it redundant and the spotlight focuses on maybe one, two or three things, so kick bass and like vocals or whatever. Everything else gets made redundant. So you can use your brain to, you can hack your brain to hear things that other people don't hear when you're mixing records. So things like resonance or things like, um, a lot of people ask me, how do you make your bass lines fatter or your kick drums bigger? And the easy answer, if you think about it in pitch, tone, and volume on those axes, pitch being left and right, tone being back and forward, and volume being up and down, to make your kick bigger, anything that's not the kick, if you turn that down, will make the kick bigger and give you more headroom. If you want more bass in your records, you have to actually take away sub so that you get a harmonic push and the frequencies above the fundamental. And the brain then says, like, oh, right, that's cool. Thanks for taking that away because now I can hear something higher up the frequency range. And that gives the yeah. perception of more bass versus actually more bass. More bass isn't really useful because your brain just doesn't. You listen, like, I learned this off of Connor Dalton, who's a master and engineer who I really respect, and he's really. He's really, really, really good, really influential as well. Um, and he says, um, I might get this wrong, I might mess this up here. But he says, you like, you listening and hearing are active and passive, like, like they're like you, you hear with your ears, but you listen with your brain. Um, and that was like a really cool little thing to sink in. Is like your ear takes in the information and your brain filters it, it makes whatever's not useful redundant and brings the useful stuff to the kind of focus. And that's how your perception works in music. So you can manipulate that as a as a mix engineer or a mastering engineer so that the listener gets the spotlight tuned in an area that you want them to hear and not a mess of all the frequencies. So imagine all the frequencies getting thrown at you and your job as a mix master engineer is just to say to the listener, uh, don't listen here, listen up here. It's like a magician's sleight of hand. Yeah. Like like magician's sleight of hand is you move in a certain way so that you don't see what he's really doing. And a mix engineer will just take the listener's attention and say, these are the most important parts to listen to. And the listener, the listener just hears it as they hear it. But when you take your perception, you can tune it in to find something that's that's useful and that's the same as like me saying to you can you feel your ass on the seat like you can't until I tell you and then you're like oh yeah it's always been there obviously we've we've touched upon like your sort of back catalogue Rob but like um, what sort of current projects are you working on Um, I'm doing a project called Brain Dancing with my friend Ross Anderson it was a club night that we ran in the Berkeley Street in Glasgow for a couple of years. Um, we had a cool kind of theme going with that where we would book a guest and not announce who the guest was. Um, 
in a pure fuck you to social media advertising kind of attitude. The social media <laughs> advertising, was, I felt, was becoming really redundant and stupid. Like, you would pay a £10 post to promote a club night and reach nobody relevant. It was really difficult. You had to be really good with social media to get anything out of it. So we just thought, fuck this. You know, like, let's let's put a party on. We had a good club. We had a good following. Ross is an amazing promoter. Like, he done Rayman I Am at the sub club for eight years. Uh, bit of a genius marketer. Um, really intelligent guy as well. He... We kind of brainstormed on this and running a night together. Funny enough, it was called Brain Dancing, but it was because we did a little brain teaser puzzle to kind of reveal who the guest was. Um, and we did a crossword puzzle, and you could, if you could solve the crossword puzzle, you kind of maybe get a clue to who the guest was or reveal the guest. Really ballsy move as well because we made it free before twelve o'clock to come in, so you could come into the club at twelve o'clock. And our first ever guest was Simi Mobile Disco. So people who came in that night got to see Simi Mobile Disco for free. Like if they came in before 12. I was one of but those. But we were the warm-up DJs. Yes, but we were the warm-up DJs. And it was our night. And we wanted to build our brand up. So we thought this was a good uh, tactic, like a lost leader type tactic, where you would front the money for the night, put on a massive risk, hopefully punters would trust you enough that they would come down. They might get a kind of a cool DJ like for free if they come down early enough. Plus they'd get to see your warm up. So you you could build it. We built a night on that. We built a night over two years on that and it worked really, really well. It, we put on um PBR Street Gang, um Dennis Salta, uh who else played? Loan from RNS. Was it not Rex we the had Dog? Rex the Dog, O'Flynn as well. Some amazing, amazing guests. And we just didn't announce who it was. So you come into the club and by one o'clock the DJ was on and it was just an in but filled through the club. Everybody kinda got out it got out and about run about the streets, you know, through like people who were out clubbing at the time. We would just tell a few of our mates and that would just trickle down into the kind of community. And people, something people knew it was playing something they didn't, but a lot of times people would just come in and dance and then, like, semi-mobile disco would start playing. Yeah, and how how important would you say being, like, a new new artist or producer, um, the branding, the branding side of things, um, you just touched on it there. Yeah, like, I think that was really, really important to me. I had a good experience with Miyadora and we were still kind of loosely doing the Miyadora project. Al, who did Miyadora, he'd moved to Berlin at the time. He started a family over there and things like that and that cooled off and I was still engineering in Glasgow and Ross was running the Berkeley Street and had a couple of openings for nights and he asked me if I went. I'd worked with him because he'd booked me in the past and we were good, really good friends anyway. Uh, and we wanted to put in a night together. He was curating all the nights in there and it was a good, it was just a good idea and the brand thing he's a really good marketing brand guy so the brain dance and brand kind of evolved through him and another guy called Joe Joe Krogan actually not Joe Rogan Joe Krogan <laughs> um, who used to do a lot of stuff at the art school uh, and he's an amazing um, visuals guy amazing graphic designer visuals guy he helped us with the initial logo and then we built a whole kind of theme around that after the club, after the club night was doing well, we knew we wanted to release music as brain dancing, so it filtered into us becoming an act. So it was a club night. We were the warm up guys, and we were known as brain dancing then. So it was a kind of a nice way to promote what we wanted to do before we actually were going to release music. And then I had a good relationship with mm. Optimal at the time as well because I was mixing records for Keith and stuff. So we let him hear a couple of early demos and we signed our first EP to Boys Noise and the second one to Optimal. So it was a bit of a dream start. Cool. If, you, if you're if you a sort of young um, aspiring DJ, um, what would be your advice in, in, in getting your music to the labels that you kind of um, look to release on? Um, uh, I can give a personal take on that one because 
I didn't send out demos for five years because I didn't confidence is one thing, but I knew I just wasn't quite at the mark of some of my favourite artists. I had a benchmark. I was very critical of myself. I didn't feel ready. I felt ready in every other way, but just not like the, the music was up to scratch. Um, so sending music to labels and artists that you love, I would just advise people just don't be scared to hang on to a record for a little bit. Even if you're just early days, if you've got a record you're really excited about and you think this is an absolute banger and I need to get it to, I don't know, like defected records or some, someone that's massive for you and, and your world, you know, Soma Records or something like that, somebody huge, like, I don't know, just try and put yourself into the label's shoes and think, would, if, you're in, if you've got no reputation and no history, then it's hard to get listened to. Um, definitely send stuff. Don't be a pest. <laughs> Don't send them and then just constantly bombard them. That's not never very good. It happens a lot. You know, I mean, it happens like it's easy to become fanatical about something and just like, I mean, and that works for some people. But what I would say is just like be sure that the stuff that you're making is as is as good as you can make it at that time, and. If you want to get in with a label or an artist that you like, it's much easier now through social media. But just engage with labels properly and engage with artists properly. Like the aim of the game is to get your music and them to listen to it. But just be nice to them, show them a bit of love and a bit of interest. Like if you're going to cold call a label, write in the email or something. You know, like just just drop in like a, a piece of information that lets that label know that you're actually interested in them and you're a fan as well as like as well as like wanting to release for them. Like so something like some good advice might be maybe lead with I'm a big fan of the label. I loved the last the last release that was out in September. Like I played it loads in my podcast on my radio show. Like can't get enough of it. I loved it. And um, here's some of my own demos. Would you mind checking them out? If you get any time to get back to me that'd be great. But that's a good approach rather than, hey, this is a banger, listen to this, you need to hear this, it's amazing, you know. It's just, <laughs> you'd be surprised how many people like email me just like without even saying hello. Do you know what I mean? They just go, check out my new tune. Wow. And you're just like, no. That's, <laughs> like, that's what I was moving on to was you are now, a, a, well, a label owner, a label head of three three labels as, I, as I've counted. So there's um, there's Poster Boy. Uh, there's Lyceum Social Club mm-hmm. and Brain Dancing Records. So, is there anything you look for when people are sending you stuff? Not really. No, like the poster boys, quite fluid and like like that can release anything. Brain Dancing's more for Brain Dancing Records and kind of mates and people that we want to release. We would we would listen to demos for that as well. Uh, Lyceum Social Club is a a kind of side project with Elias from Elias and Barrientos, who I engineer for as well and mix their records. Elias is a long-term mate of mine, and that is more for him. That's his kind of like, like he kind of deals with the kind of more of the A and R side of that, like you know picking the records. I deal with the mastering and mixing side of that. Um, that's more for like fun disco house records, you know, just like a bit more light-hearted and there's not a major. Like, oh, we must sign this kind of music. It's, like, quite, like, fun, happier kind of stuff for that. Um, I also manage and run a couple of small labels for artists. I'm building up a little business now doing that, managing independent record labels. Um, also, as well, a good thing to, to let listeners know is my records that I send out still get knocked back. Like, I send out plenty of demos to people that I know, like, big DJs and influential guys and they still say no like they still go oh it's cool even though they, like, I've got a decent reputation in the industry for writing records and I still get plenty of knockbacks so don't be disheartened if you're sending music and you've never had anything signed and you get knockbacks because you it's not about you they don't like your music it's just it doesn't work for them at that time or it doesn't fit for them at that time there's no disrespect that you haven't wrote a, a good record it's just you're trying to find a home for it and to get a home for a record, the label has to love it. You know, they have to be like, I would play this. I can't wait to play this. So 
when they say no, they don't mean you record shit, mate. Like fuck off. <laughs> what they mean is just like it's like some of them are nice and they say, "Ah, oh, it's not for us right now," and keep sending us stuff, or some just don't answer you. And as a for any advice of a young artist out there, that happens continuously forever. Like that doesn't go away. Like at least in Barry and us are signed to Ultra Music in America, like big record deal they've got, and they still send the music, and they go, "Nah, I'm not going to release that one." Like, give us another one. <laughs> and there's just, there's, there's no, do you mean there's no, like, not every record's going to get a release as well, you know, when you're writing tunes. I was, I was sitting on 40 brain dancing records at the minute. 40, I think, at the last count. And I'll just release whatever ones I'm happy with or whatever ones I want to send out because some of them are shit, you know? <laughs> like, some of them are amazing. Some of them are just like, okay, some of them are shit. But you've got to just, You've got to get all those ideas out of your head and then if you sit on them for a while, you'll realise which ones will last the test of time and you'll know which ones to send to the labels and stuff. I think that's good advice. Is like, Don't be frustrated if your career isn't kind of happening overnight. It's, just a, it's a 10-year window to become an overnight success. Like Anybody you know that's blew up in the last six months hasn't. I would guarantee, I bet my life on it, that 90% of them, 99% of them have been doing it a long time. What was the first club you went to? Um, the first club I ever went to was an under-18s youth club in my hometown of Milton. It was pretty rough. Like It was a council scheme youth club rave. But it was incredible. It was amazing. It was like, I think I was like, I think I would have been about 11 or 12. Is this happy hardcore? Yeah. And it was a pitch black room, one strobe light, like 200 kids, all going mental, absolutely crazy to hardcore music. Some of the best DJs I've ever heard came to that club. Like 16, 17 year old guys that could scratch like a hip hop DJ over hardcore. Like it was so... And I didn't even want to be into, I wasn't even thinking about being a DJ then. I couldn't afford decks or anything. But it was my first experience of proper clubbing, like like a rave, like a proper rave. And I was only like 11 or 12, you know. First proper clubbing experience for me was, I think, was the Art Chiefs in Glasgow. Everybody knows that club, I think, from Glasgow. But my first... R.I.P. Yes, yeah, it's a shame. But my first kind of like real eureka moment was in there like I think I bought tickets for the Boxing Day party not knowing any of the DJs and it was like Sasha Digweed Radio Slave Matthias Tansman people like that <laughs> unreal it was like huge lineups at the time it was like Felix the Housecat Richie Horton um, Dubfire people like that it was all like the big techno scene that kicked off but a few of them cancelled, whether it was flights or whatever, and I ended up in the first arch with Radio Slave and Matthias Tansman kind of playing, and it was tribal and not melodic, and it was it was like what I would describe as tracky and druggy and repetitive, and just there wasn't like a it wasn't like a proper hands in the air type of kind of crowd. It was more like a heads down bobbing crowd, but it was so hypnotic, so amazing, just. The experience of being in the Archies. I've actually got a funny story for you. Go. Cool. One of my first times in the Archies. So, everybody that knows me out there knows I don't take drugs. I'm very pro-drug culture. Like, I wish I could take drugs, but uh, the reason I don't take drugs is because I know my personality and I know I would love them. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's the only reason I don't take them because I would. I'm very on. Well, you guys, you guys know me from music, and yeah, I'm obsessive about what I do. And if I knew I would be that way with drugs, so I just bad family history, things like that, you know, kept me away from them. I was into rave at a young age, so I got it. I got what, it, what why I loved it. I knew drugs could possibly ruin it for me, or possibly make it better. Ninety percent of me said it would make it better, but I was like. I'll just love that shit, so I just can't. So I knew enough. I was very self-aware at a young age, and I knew that I couldn't do it. So 
I was in the Archies one year and I was about 17, 18, I think, at the time. I think it was just kind of like going from the kind of rave, kind of trancy time. And uh, I always remember this story. It was so funny. At the time, you wore a uh, wet look gel. <laughs> yeah, I remember it. <laughs> remember wet look gel? Yeah. It was like the blue clear stuff. Like Dip was, your uh, comb in. A horrible <laughs> shaped tub as well. The branding on it was awful. Brill cream. I uh, like like so the generation before us was broken, but our generation was wet look gel. But it it, it kind of solidified your hair, <laughs> like into like a kind of crispy state. <laughs> Horrible, <laughs> right? But if anybody's out there that's ever taken pills, and I can't I can't kind of vouch for this, but I know what it's like. I, I, I'm not I'm quite a small guy, so um, a big six foot guy behind me just started touching my hair. <laughs> like very lightly like on the top of it and I was like what the fuck mate what are you doing and I looked behind me and he was obviously out of his chops like, out of his chops on pills and he was just like oh mate your hair feels <laughs> and I was like alright cool and I just kind of moved out the way and I like, my hug and was like cool mate but he was just having the time of his life but the kind of like because my the height in my head, he was just like, just lightly dabbing the top of my hair, and he was like, "Your hair feels classy, man." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I looked at him, and he just had this jaw that was swagging about, and I was like, "You having a good night, mate?" <laughs> <laughs> there's no there's no other words to kind of like describe that moment. <laughs> so then, what was your favorite? clubbing experience my favorite was um tina park at slam tent actually djing so a place i'd always wanted to dj at um and we were doing a miradora set and we played a big tune at the time called ill defined it was like a big techno track and the reaction off of that crowd like fourteen thousand people squeezed into a tent like and a still got it on video like I still kind of look back and think it was an amazing little moment um, that's my favourite ever clubbing experience is just the little buzz off that was mental like to watch and if you've been in the slam tent it's like everyone shouting here we fucking go like usual Glasgow pan up it's cringy and to think about it but seeing an experience of playing in front of that many people and playing a song that you made in your bedroom and it's a sea of heads just going absolutely mental to one of your tunes. That's my favourite ever experience in a club. Yeah. And just for those that don't know, Tea in the Park was um, like Scotland's biggest music festival. It was kind of similar to like Red and Lee's Glastonbury. Yeah. Um, and, and it's incredible. Um, and just a household name. Is and the Slam tent was obviously run by Roma Records and Slam and they hosted it and it was a real milestone gig for me as well. You know, like I've been lucky enough to tick off a couple of my favourite of our clubs. Sub Club in Glasgow is probably, that's another one for me. So getting to play at the Sub Club was an experience, but getting to play a full, a full night in there and to headline in there and people react to your music in that club's pretty special as well. I've managed to tick a couple of good boxes, like playing Fabric, playing the sub club, like the Slam Tent, like Tina Park, things like that. All amazing experiences, but that was, uh, that was a character. If a young aspiring artist or more established artist was looking to submit music to you, where's the best place to send that? Um, for... Disco and house. I would go. I would go down Lyceum Social Club route. Um, if you go to Lyceum Social Club on SoundCloud, there is a, a demo email on there. I think it's info at lyceumsocialclub.com, But there's a little demos tab on the SoundCloud page. You can submit demos through there. Um, Brain dancing. Uh, likewise, there's one on that page as well. So just SoundCloud, and you can um, contact either through direct message on there 
if anybody wants to submit demos or anything, the best way is just a private SoundCloud link so that I can so that you can audibly stream it and make the downloads available in case you want to kind of listen offline or check it out. That'd be the best way. Do you want to plug anything coming out in the near future? If anybody wants to check out um, Brain Dancing, you can find us on Brain Dancing Records at Beatport, Spotify, iTunes, or Bandcamp is a good place as well. Um, maybe if you want to check out some of the music, go there. Uh, other than that, um, if anybody wants to contact me, I'm a bit of a nightmare to get a hold of, so don't bother. <laughs> and if they want to if they want to get some of your teaching where can they um get some mixing tips and lessons yeah sorry i'm joking aside you can actually i'll be recording some uh, zoom classes and sessions for a few different projects in the upcoming future but a good place to go is subsign academy um, I'm a teacher and a lecturer and mixing mastering for uh, Simon Stokes over at Subsign. Um, he's, he's, there's a few courses there for people to learn, um, Ableton Live, whether it's whether you're beginners, intermediates, or even advanced. I teach a more advanced class in mixing and mastering, but Simon is a fantastic uh, tutor at the, in the school. He's really good. There's a brilliant community there as well. They have a blog where you can submit your amateur demos and the rest of the community will give you some critique and feedback uh, i was on there the other night and i was just helping a few young guys give them a wee couple of tips on their mix downs and stuff like that and the the rest of the community is great they're really active and stuff they they support each other promote each other's music and stuff it's a great um, project so check out sub sign academy well thanks very much for coming on the podcast rob really appreciate it um some really insightful stuff and um hopefully a, a, a lot of stuff that i think people will take away um and use in the future i guess no worries thank you very much guys for having me it was um a nice conversation to have and enjoyed it thanks a lot